0: Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 16, Warlords, Peacemakers, Lovers. The assassination of the dictator Julius Caesar failed to restore the Republic as the Liberators intended. While there was an uneasy peace for a time between the Caesarians and Liberators, the chaos in the wake of Caesar's death left everyone scrambling for power. Once at odds with each other, Mark Antony and Caesar's adopted son Octavian united, and along with Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, the three Caesarians formed the Second Triumvirate, giving them all dictatorial powers like Caesar, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> with the express goal to restore the Republic, and a true goal of dominating the Republic. They controlled Rome and the western half of the Republic with their numerous legions, and began their rule by prescribing their enemies and the rich men of Rome to raise money to pay for their army. Anyone was liable to be marked for death, including Rome's greatest orator, Marcus Tullius Cicero, for his rhetoric against Mark Antony. In the eastern half of the Republic, the Liberators had fled and gathered strength, with Marcus Junius Brutus and Cassius, who had illegally seized governorships, and now had their own armies. Together, they controlled about 20 legions, and started demanding greater payments from the eastern provinces and destroying communities who refused them. Brutus and Cassius were warlords like the Triumvirs, whose power ultimately came from their armies and buying their loyalty with coin. While Brutus and Cassius claimed to be the true saviors of the Republic, they weren't following its virtues and trying to save it. The stage was set for another bloody civil war. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode is, who is the most powerful politician in the Republic? As a content warning, there is mention of sexual assault and suicide this episode. Antony and Octavian would go east with 19 legions to fight Brutus and Cassius. Antony was the most powerful triumvir, with the most amount of soldiers and politicians personally loyal to him. Octavian went too to avenge his adoptive father Caesar leaving Lepidus the odd man out to oversee Italy. Antony and Octavian would face the 17 legions Brutus and Cassius concentrated around Philippi and Macedon. As Antony and Octavian had to ship their men and supplies across the Mediterranean, Brutus and Cassius could harass their travels, making it difficult to land men and harder to get them supplies when they did land. Antony and Octavian were able to land a sizable force and started to square off against Brutus and Cassius. Octavian had become very ill on the voyage and was delayed in his arrival. They watched each other for days, ready to battle at a moment's notice. Something to keep in mind for this civil war was that these armies were larger than the ones led by Caesar and Pompey, two military geniuses. These larger armies would be led by less experienced men, making it all the more a toss up. Brutus and Cassius were content to wait it out. The east was their home turf. They had more resources than Antony and Octavian, whose army would be slowly worn down. A few small skirmishes broke out, but no full-fledged battle for control of the Republic took place yet. Antony was secretly building fortifications through the nearby marshes that would cut off Brutus and Cassius from their supplies. When Cassius noticed this, he ordered an attack. Antony and his men were able to repel Cassius' attack and then launched a counterattack into Cassius's camp, sending Cassius reeling. When Cassius was losing to Antony, Brutus was crushing Octavian. Octavian was still ill and didn't seem to leave a subordinate in command. His men leaderless, Brutus's attack broke Octavian's line and started raiding his camps. Brutus's men made a critical error and became too busy looting to hunt down Octavian's fleeing army. Brutus and Antony would withdraw from their attacks. And returned to their original camps. Both sides sustained casualties and Octavian probably lost the most men. However, Cassius had no idea Brutus savaged Octavian and when he mistook friendly cavalry riding to him as Antony's men coming to kill him, Cassius asked a slave to help him commit suicide. Brutus was now alone and left against the Caesarians. For three more weeks, the massive armies continued to face off against each other. Brutus had a hard time keeping the loyalty of Cassius' men and had to promise them even greater payments after this battle was done. Antony resumed his fortifications that would eventually cut Brutus off from his supplies, and so Brutus prepared for an open battle. Octavian had recovered by this point, and this time could actually lead his men to battle. In this battle, there were no tricks up anyone's sleeves, only a slugfest between two massive armies slowly punishing each other until one would give up and run. After slowly being pushed back and cut down, it was Brutus's men who gave flight. Brutus committed suicide with some assistance. Antony and Octavian had won the Battle of Philippi. Some survivors went to the rogue Sextus Pompey at sea. Survivors captured by Antony were mostly pardoned by him, and some would loyally serve him in the future. He was also said to have wrapped Brutus's dead body in his own general's cloak as a sign of respect. In contrast, Octavian executed many of the prisoners he caught, earning a darker reputation. In one instance, he was accused of making a captured father and son gamble on who would be beheaded first. While Octavian won at Philippi, Antony was the truest victor. He proved himself a brave and active commander who was hailed as an Imperator Compared to the sickly Octavian who was hiding in the marshes while Brutus was killing his men. Even if Octavian was active in the second battle, Antony was perceived as the greatest commander and got a lot more credit for the victory. <laughs> Success! After the Battle of Philippi and the Triumvirate's victory, the Triumvirs set about carving up the Roman world for themselves. Antony, the hero of the day, would get the most generous portions. He was going to take charge of the rich eastern provinces and had a loyal governor controlling Gaul and a few loyal generals in Italy. Oh yeah, it's all coming together. Antony's Italian generals would help support Octavian's rule of Rome and Italy, and Octavian himself had a few Spanish provinces to oversee as well. Lepidus would be marginalized to ruling the province of Africa. Each of the Triumvirs would essentially be dictators of their assigned territory. Many soldiers were due to be discharged and had to be given the land they were promised by Antony and Octavian. This task fell unto Octavian, who would find them land in Italy. It was a job that would make him unpopular, and the seized land of the prescribed would not be enough to give these soldiers the land they were due. Land was going to have to be taken from the Italians to settle these soldiers. Octavian lingered in the east before returning to Rome as he had fallen ill again. Antony was going to remain in the East. He had enjoyed his time there in his earlier career, and it was a natural fit. Antony continued to squeeze the Eastern communities for wealth and resources, asking for nine years worth of taxes in a two-year span. I want you to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze! These Eastern communities were already ravaged enough from the Pompeians and the Liberators and were now being forced to give up wealth once more. While Antony was bleeding the East dry, he and the triumvirs legitimately needed this money to help pay for their armies and stabilize the Republic that had just been rocked by another civil war. If Antony didn't give his soldiers their due pay, they were liable to start a rebellion. While in the East, Antony resumed his more indulgent lifestyle, keeping himself entertained with feasts and parties. With his wife in Rome, he kept himself entertained with women too, some communities even celebrated him as a god, like Caesar and Pompey before him. Yes, indeed. Life was going very well for Mark Antony. I love what I'm seeing. I love what's going on right now. This is what it's all about. The eastern client kings, who depended on Rome's favor to hold their thrones, came to Antony to win his appeal. One such monarch was no king, but Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. Her husband and brother, King the XIV, had since died, leaving her queen and her eldest child Ptolemy Caesarian as king. She arrived fashionably late on an impressive pleasure boat. Crowds watched her sail and she dazzled them, dressed like a goddess. But she only needed to dazzle one man, Mark Antony. Antony invited her to dine with him, but she declined and instead invited him to dine with her. That night, Antony got a taste of royalty. Additionally, just like Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra seemed to be quickly falling in love. The now 28-year-old queen was as intelligent, charming, witty, and beautiful as ever. Antony, in his early 40s, was a muscular, passionate, swaggering war hero. There was a clear political attraction too. For Cleopatra, she needed the triumvirate to approve of her, and Antony was now the most celebrated of the triumvirs. For Antony, just like Caesar, A stable Egypt could stabilize the Republic. Cleopatra's extravagant introduction displayed all the wealth and beauty of Egypt and gave Antony a taste of a more delicious life. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Allying with Cleopatra would stabilize the Republic with Egypt's riches. Having an affair with Cleopatra would make Antony himself all the richer. Within the year, Cleopatra gave birth to Antony's twins, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene. Antony ordered the execution of Cleopatra's sister, Arsinoe, who was living in Greece. Though not in Egypt, Arsinoe could possibly threaten Cleopatra's control of Egypt as she had before. Antony confirmed Cleopatra and her young son Ptolemy Caesarion as the rightful queen and king of Egypt. Antony migrated to Alexandria with Cleopatra where he lived large with his queen, enjoying royal feasts, hunting, and theatrical performances. However, Antony was called away from Alexandria when the Parthians raided into the Syrian province. Antony left to stabilize Syria and prepare a grand army to invade Parthia. Antony was only going to become more heroic, fulfilling one of Julius Caesar's old dreams, conquering into Parthia, avenging Crassus, and making himself rich. Our battle will be legendary! Some worried that Octavian would die from the illness ailing him. However, he recovered and returned to Rome to settle thousands of discharged soldiers. Octavian was going to have to take land away from the Italians, only the most influential and wealthy of whom would be allowed to keep their land. While it certainly turned many Italians against him, Italians who had owned their land for generations and committed no crimes, it was far more important that Octavian keep his soldiers happy, as they were the reason he was a 21-year-old dictator. Sextus Pompey was also a thorn in Octavian's side. The 26-year-old son of Pompey Magnus commanded a rogue navy that patrolled the seas, had taken over Sicily, and disrupted grain shipments into Rome. Suddenly, food was in short supply, as Rome itself depended on food imports. As the city began to starve, pressure increased on the young Triumvir to find a solution. Further threatening Octavian's control of Italy was Mark Antony's surviving brother, Lucius Antonius. Lucius Antonius was Rome's consul for that year. While it was mostly a title and irrelevant compared to Octavian's power, Lucius Antonius aspired to make a name for himself. As his brother and Octavian himself had. Just like any other Roman senator, he wanted glory, power, and wealth. He took up the cause of the Italians who lost their land, worsening his relationship with Octavian. After a few months, Lucius Antonius thought Octavian was weak enough to remove him from power. Octavian was out of Rome at the time, and his fellow triumvir Lepidus held the city. Lucius Antonius raised a small army. And briefly seized control of Rome, Renegade. forcing Lepidus to flee to Octavian. Lucius Antonius was supported by Antony's wife, and they tried to raise support from Antony's veterans to fight Octavian. However, very few veterans actually answered the call. Why would they fight Octavian, who was giving them land? Lucius Antonius's army fled Rome as Octavian's larger army made its way towards the city. Lucius Antonius took refuge in the city of Perugia where he was blockaded by Octavian. Fortunately for Octavian, Mark Antony apparently did not support his rebellious brother. Three of Antony's generals were in Italy and had command of armies. While they formed up their armies, none actually went to fight Octavian and save Lucius Antonius and had no orders to do anything from Antony. Without help, Lucius Antonius surrendered to Octavian. Octavian spared Antony's brother and most of his soldiers. One disaster averted for Octavian. Lucius Antonius was made a governor of one of the Spanish provinces, where he couldn't do too much damage. Antony's wife and mother fled Italy toward Antony in the east. Sextus Pompey escorted Antony's mother, who told her he was interested in making an alliance with Antony to bring down Octavian. Antony left Syria for Greece to meet his wife and mother. When hearing Sextus Pompey's proposition to turn on Octavian, Antony replied that if Octavian and he went to war, he would be Sextus Pompey's ally. Until then, the triumvirate held. Antony truly had little to no involvement in this brief civil war with his brother. He was too far east to have affected anything, and although he would have benefited if his brother somehow won, stability with Octavian was just as good. Antony was none too pleased at his wife, who encouraged what could have been a major civil war and treated her coldly. Octavian, trying to bring himself closer to Sextus Pompey, divorced Antony's stepdaughter. Octavian claimed his marriage with the 15-year-old was never consummated, which was likely the case. Now single, Octavian married Scribonia, a woman a decade older than him. Scribonia was Sextus Pompey's father-in-law's sister and a supporter of Sextus. Octavian hoped that by being closer to the family, he might be able to negotiate a peace, and Sextus would stop raiding shipments of food destined for the Roman people. Unfortunately for Octavian, he disliked his new wife, and relations with Sextus Pompey did not improve. But this was a marriage of spirit, and bone. I've made a huge mistake. Death seemed to follow Antony for a while. In a short amount of time, his wife, brother, and loyal governor of Gaul died. When his Gallic governor died, Octavian moved north into the province and claimed control of the region and the 11 legions there, adjusting the balance of power between him and Antony. Things were more tense between the two since Antony's brother's rebellion, and this certainly did not help. Antony returned to Italy while Octavian was in Gaul and nearly set off another civil war. As he was sailing across the east, he joined up with Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus, son of the dead Optimate Ahenobarbus. This new Ahenobarbus formerly supported Brutus and Cassius and had escaped capture after Antony and Octavian defeated him. Now, Ahenobarbus patrolled the seas as a pirate, just like Sextus Pompey. However, Ahenobarbus met Antony on friendly terms and the two sailed into the port city of Brundisium. The problem was that since the city recognized Ahenobarbus' ships who had raided them, they refused to let him use the port. Oh, this guy! Do not let him in! Understand me? Just ignore him! Ignore him, Jody! Since Antony sailed with the Ahenobarbus, they also refused Antony access to the port. Antony saw this as Octavian's ploy to keep him out of Italy, and he landed his men nearby to besiege the city. Octavian was drawn out of Gaul and raised men to fight Antony. Many grateful veterans who just settled took up arms for their generous commander, but when they learned they were about to fight Antony and their former comrades, many declined. Octavian still had enough men to blockade Antony. There were a few skirmishes, but ultimately, the soldiers decided the outcome of the battle. They were too friendly to fight each other, and forced Antony and Octavian to reconcile. This was definitely for the best, as Antony and Octavian would have been foolish to declare civil war on each other. Neither was even prepared, and neither had the same power, influence, and actoritas as Caesar to be able to peacefully rule the Republic alone. After negotiations, Antony and Octavian better defined how the Empire would be split between the two of them. Octavian was going to control Italy, Gaul and Spain, Antony would have control of all the rich eastern provinces. Lepidus, who wasn’t invited to this carving of the world, was still left only to manage the province of Africa. I'm uh, Mr Manager. Additionally, Antony was assigned to invade Parthia, and Octavian was assigned to take Sicily and other islands from Sextus Pompey. A who was not a conspirator in the assassination of Caesar, received a pardon. There was now peace between the two strongest triumvirs. The Roman world rejoiced that the situation didn't escalate into another full-blown civil war. To secure their alliance, the recently widowed Antony married the recently widowed Octavia, Octavian's own sister. Normally, a Roman woman had to wait ten months before marrying again, so if she was pregnant with her first husband's child, the paternity would not be in question by the time she married the next man. However, an exception was made for the masters of Rome. It was a time of celebration, Octavian and Antony were watching each other's backs. This was made very apparent, as was the threat of Sextus Pompey in an incident that almost killed Octavian. Sextus Pompey continued to cut food from being shipped to Rome. The price of food only rose, and the Roman people only grew more frustrated at Octavian and Antony, who seemingly refused to do anything about it. As Octavian walked the streets, with only a few bodyguards, a mob came upon him and started throwing projectiles at him. Octavian was injured, and if the mob overtook his bodyguards, he would be at their mercy. Antony led a small force of soldiers to Octavian, and when the mob wouldn't let him pass, he cut them down to save the young Triumvir. Where once Antony and Octavian were literally at war with each other, and had recently nearly been at war again, the brothers-in-law were clearly on the same side now. Look at us. Hey. Look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. It was also clear, now more than ever, that they had to reach a peace with Sextus Pompey. After two rounds of negotiations with Sextus Pompey, they came to an agreement. Sextus Pompey would be turned from an enemy into a friend. He was made the legal governor of Sicily and other islands he controlled and gained the Peloponnese in Greece. He was also made a senator, a priest, and promised to be made consul in six years. As a part of the young Pompey's terms, all the prescribed men that were still in exile, many of whom Sextus Pompey had saved from the savage Triumvirs, were to be pardoned and a quarter of their wealth would be returned to them. Antony and Octavian agreed, but still excluded a few surviving assassins of Caesar. In return, Sextus Pompey's blockade was ended and the Roman people finally got their food. Of course, Sextus Pompey didn't leave the sea. Just like Julius Caesar, if he entered Rome, he gave up his legal command. Sextus Pompey didn't want to give up his command as it was the only power he had if the triumvirs turned on him. Just like Antony and Octavian, Sextus Pompey was a warlord whose power was derived from controlling forces that could inflict violence to gain and maintain power. Sextus Pompey was an interesting character in his own right. He was only in his late 20s, saw his father assassinated in Egypt, and saw his elder brother killed in Spain. He used his father's name to draw strength and attract people to him, much like Octavian did with his adoptive father Caesar. To celebrate the peace between them all, Antony and Octavian dined on Sextus Pompey's flagship. According to the historian Plutarch, born around 50 years after this, even at its inception, the peace was uneasy. One of Sextus's admirals joked that he could make Sextus the commander of the world right there by killing Antony and Octavian. Sextus Pompey said he himself wouldn't be so treacherous, but wished his admiral would have just killed them without asking. (laughs) (laughs) Yet even an uneasy peace is peace. Antony and Octavian safely arrived home, and Rome was happy to be fed again. Antony would return east to contend with Parthia, but before that, he spent time with his new wife Octavia. Octavia traveled to Athens with him. Roman wives did not usually travel with their husbands, and it was a sign that the marriage between the two was strong. Their daughter Antonia was born before they arrived. Antony was not an aggressive general preparing for war, but a man on vacation in Athens. Ah, Look at me! I'm having the time of my life! He kept his attendance to a minimum, attended lectures, and was put in charge of making sure young Athenians got their physical education. The Athenians treated the Triumvir and his lovely wife, and named Antony the new god Dionysus and had a marriage ceremony with him and Octavia, who represented Athena. Dionysus made sure Athens paid a handsome sum for Athena's dowry, too. The young Octavian was also finding love, Scribonia gave birth to his daughter Julia in 39 BCE, but Octavian felt no love for his wife and, in fact, divorced her as soon as Julia was born. Octavian even said why, telling her he could no longer stand her bitter personality. It's something unpredictable, but in the end it's right. I hope you had that time of your life. He had married Scribonia out of political convenience, but more recently, he was busying himself in other men's beds with their wives, just as Caesar and his fellow Triumvir Antony enjoyed affairs with powerful women before him. Octavian showed as much sexual restraint as one would expect from a 24-year-old. Octavian's friends said that this wasn't for pleasure, as he was just trying to learn secrets from senators' wives. Of course, This can be very easily seen through the lens that Octavian was taking advantage of senators' wives. I am very confident in at least saying in some of these instances, Octavian was at the very least coercing women into sex, which may not have been totally consensual, which then would have been rape. Octavian was a warlord who created a death list. Senators may have given their wives to him because they were too scared to say no to him or hoped it would land them in Octavian's good graces. It's also possible some women willingly went into bed with Octavian for a chance to seduce the young Triumvir and one of the most powerful men in the Republic, but Octavian very likely exploited some women in his position of power. Sextus Pompey guaranteed the safety of the prescribed, and so survivors of the Deathless started trickling back to Rome. One was Tiberius Claudius Nero, who had the uncanny ability of betting on the wrong horse. While he started off well, a Caesarian against the Pompeians, he would then support Brutus and Cassius over the triumvirs. Even worse, he supported Lucius and Tanius trying to overthrow Octavian. Oh, brother, this guy stinks! His name made it on the prescription list. He and his wife Livia had escaped all the way to Greece before returning to Rome. Livia came from an aristocratic pedigree, a patrician of the Claudian family, and distantly related to her husband. Her father had committed suicide after losing with Brutus and Cassius against Antony and Octavian. The couple had a hard time reclaiming the quarter of the wealth they were due. But returning to Rome, the 20-year-old Livia caught the eye of Octavian. Just like Cleopatra and Caesar, and Cleopatra and Antony, there seemed to be an immediate, magnetic attraction between the two. Livia was beautiful, but also, as Octavian would find, intelligent, charming, full of wit, and tenacity. My God, she's something special. I'm just gonna leave it at that. She is sensational. She survived with her husband on their bad years on the run, escaping forest fires and nearly being found in the wilderness as her infant son Tiberius cried out. And to Livia, comparing the youngest Triumvir to her politically impotent husband was no contest. Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus was as ambitious, confident, and far more powerful than even Julius Caesar had been at this point in his life. I love him. He's crushing it too. When Octavian met Livia, she was pregnant with Claudius Nero's second child. It didn't stop Livia and her Triumvir from starting an affair. Claudius Nero willingly divorced his pregnant wife in October 39 BCE, although he was in no position to refuse Octavian. Livia was immediately engaged to Octavian and lived with him. In January 38 BCE, Three days after she gave birth to Claudius Nero's son, she married Octavian. Their wedding was a lavish affair with a Greek god theme. While Antony had role-played as Dionysus, Octavian role-played as Apollo. As Livia didn't have many living male family members, her ex-husband Claudius Nero gave her away to Octavian. This, of course, played horribly for Octavian, criticized for abusing his power to steal another man's wife. However, Livia herself was very ready to marry Octavian, perhaps wanting to lock up the young Triumvir while she could. Octavian's extravagant feast also did not play well. Rome was back to starving. Due to a perception of promises being made and broken, someone cut off Rome's food supply again. Who, you may ask? Boopy doopy doop boop sex. Tus. Indeed, peace with Sextus Pompey lasted about a year before he was back to starving Rome from food. As the people starved, Octavian dressed as a Greek god, and feasted with his friends, and made his new wife's ex-husband give her away at the ceremony. Oh, stop booing. There's nothing wrong with it. Another problem for the 25-year-old Octavian to fix. In this episode, the Triumvirs defeated the assassins Brutus and Cassius. The three dictators would rule the Republic. For his valor in defeating Brutus and Cassius, Antony was the most celebrated of them all. However, Octavian maintained his power, and the two decided to marginalize Lepidus, leaving him with command of a single province. The rule of Octavian and Antony did not go unchallenged. Antony's brother tried to take over Octavian's position, but surrendered to him. Antony and Octavian nearly went to civil war in Brudisium, but moods de-escalated when their soldiers refused to fight each other. The two renewed their peace, and together, they made peace with the rogue Sextus Pompey, who had been starving Rome's population. Antony and Octavian were also sure to revel in their powers as masters of the Roman world. Antony lived it up in the east and began an affair with Cleopatra and confirmed her as Egypt's rightful queen. Octavian's heart was stolen by Livia and married her within months of meeting her. Antony, too, had a new wife, Octavian's sister, Octavia, who bore him a daughter. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode was, who is the most powerful politician in the Republic? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to reflect on your answer. Well, this episode saw some power fluctuations to be sure. Sorry if you were banking on Brutus and Cassius. There's not a 100% right answer, but I'm gonna go with Antony. Antony was straight up living his best life, the general who won the Civil War against Brutus and Cassius and avenged Caesar. He took control of the rich eastern provinces, and was making client kings loyal to him. With Cleopatra, he had a rich, powerful, bad and bougie girlfriend, and two kids with her. And with Octavia, he had a new wife and kid too. Antony was setting himself up quite well, and possibly laying a foundation for a dynasty. However, there is an argument to be made that Octavian is the strongest. Octavian didn't perform so admirably in the war against Brutus and Cassius, but did control Rome itself which had to count for something. Additionally, he handedly defeated Antony's rebellious brother and gained control of Gaul from Antony. Octavian was basically running the western half of the Republic, which, while less rich, actually contained Rome itself, as we see. It puts a lot of heat on him when things are going poorly, like Sextus Pompey cutting off food or his scandalous behavior. However, if Octavian can turn things around, good things he did for Rome would immediately circulate in Rome. Octavian had the potential to more quickly earn the people's love. And now it was time for war again. Antony was setting up to invade Parthia, and Octavian was supposed to drown a now-resurgent Sextus Poppy. As said in the early days of this series, Romans, for one reason or another, loved war. Throughout this chapter of Roman history, war and conflict often occurred, despite the devastation it caused to the politicians in charge War was the means of gaining, maintaining, and securing their power. So until there was no one standing between Antony, Octavian, and unchallenged power over Rome, there would always be a reason for war. Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic Podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you! If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter for some educational summaries of the episode, perhaps some maps you will find helpful, you can check out the show at pod on Twitter. Of course, we also share Roman history memes there if you want to have a good chuckle there as well. So go ahead and follow at pod on Twitter, if you like. Hello, listeners. Death of the Roman Republic is ending soon. The series will conclude at Chapter 20 on October 27th, 2020. However, the podcast feed won't be inactive, and I have a slew of one-off episodes I plan to release for the rest of 2020 and 2021. The first of these one-off episodes will be a Q&A. You can submit questions about producing the show, about Roman history, about myself, or about anything else you can think of. I have no idea how long this episode might be, but I'll try to answer as many appropriate questions as possible. You can tweet Q&A questions at the show at dotrrpod on Twitter or email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com and I'll try to include your question and credit you with asking if you would like. So tweet or email the show if you have any questions for me and I'll try my best to answer them. The Q&A episode will drop roughly around Halloween 2020, maybe the day before, maybe the day after. We'll see. A lot is up in the air in the world right now. Stay safe and have a lovely rest of your day. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show.